Well, today we start in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8 again. Hebrews 8 begins by discussing this uh, idea that Jesus is our high priest and that Jesus is the only priest that uh, we will ever need. And therefore, uh, we understand that in a new covenant, there's a new priesthood that comes along. So in other messages along the book of Hebrews, we've discussed this idea that, uh, of, of priesthood. And we've discussed the idea that Jesus is our high priest. And so we're not going to cover that this morning. We're going to start with verse 6 then. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, if you would please. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. It says this, But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the, one, to the old one. And it is founded on better promises. And so, in effect, what the writer of Hebrews is saying then is the ministry that Jesus ushered in when he came to earth is superior to that of the old covenant. And that the covenant that Jesus brings with him then is also superior to the old covenant. And so that's a very bold statement for the first century Jews to have received, to, heard, to have heard. Not only to receive, but then they're being asked to believe that there is a new covenant. That would have been very, very difficult for those people. They had been raised to understand that the old covenant was from God. That it was not the old covenant, but that it was the only covenant that God had placed between God and His people. And now you have the writer of Hebrews come along and begin to, to talk about this idea that Jesus is actually ushering in a, an entirely new covenant altogether. And so that's where we begin this morning. But you know, it's also a difficult concept for us today. For many Christians and many Jews today, it's still a difficult concept to understand that Jesus has actually ushered in an entirely new covenant that the old one has done away with and the new one has come in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now that's very difficult for people to understand. But before we go further into that, I wanted to just take an opportunity now just to uh, discuss the concept of a covenant. Because we understand contracts and stuff, but we don't really understand the word covenant in today's culture. Now covenant is an agreement between two parties. And it's the idea that uh, someone comes along and says to you, if you do this, then I promise to do that. But it's a bit more than a contract. A covenant was an oath-bound promise, usually between a superior and an inferior party, where the services would be performed by the inferior and the blessings would be promised by the superior. And so maybe it's the idea of a master comes along to a slave and, and makes a covenant with them. And so the master says, if you do this, I promise that I will do that. It's a covenant. But we all understand covenant in the sense of God coming down to humanity and making an agreement with different people throughout Scripture. And so when you read Scripture, you see that God set up covenants with many different people within Scripture. And so you see that God relates to humanity through covenant. You have a covenant that God set up with Noah, that he would never flood the world again. And then you have a covenant with Abraham and with David and with others within Scripture. Right. And so in Hebrews... You get through uh, Hebrews 7 through about chapter 10, and there's this terminology that crops up, Old Covenant, New Covenant, you start to get these ideas. And so it's important to clarify up front what we're talking about here. The Old Covenant is that agreement that God made with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament at Mount Sinai, just after the story that Chris read before when he led them out of slavery in Egypt. He set up this contract or this covenant with his people. So when the author of Hebrews talks Old Covenant, think back to 
Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, the law, that's the covenant we're talking about. Not the one with Abraham, not the one with Noah. It's the Mosaic covenant. The new covenant, by contrast, is the one that God makes with Jesus and all of the people that Jesus now represents, which is you or I, if we're followers of Christ. So what's happening in Hebrews 8, and what we're going to try and draw out a little bit this morning here, is the distinction between these two covenants. So the author effectively lines up the old covenant, the one that came by Moses, and the new covenant, the one that came by Jesus, and he says, here is a comparison and a contrast of what that looks like. This is what it used to be. And remember, the whole theme of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. So what the author of Hebrews is wanting to show us is, well, that was the old covenant. Here's what it looked like. Here's how it functioned. But now this new covenant that has come through the blood of Jesus Christ is infinitely better in every way. So we are going to try and draw out some of these distinctions between the old and the new and how this affects our lives. That's right. That's right. So there's, there's several differences we want to discuss with you this morning. First of all, there's a difference between the old covenant in which it was external, externally focused. They had external laws that people, regulations that they had to follow. And then new covenant is more internal. Now under the old covenant, the Torah was the outward way in which the Israelites expressed their identity with God. And the Torah is the law, the law of Moses that Reuben was pointing out there. And so when God gave the law to Israel, he also made a covenant agreement with them. And the covenant that the writer of Hebrews is referring to here is the Mosaic Covenant. Now the Mosaic Covenant, or the Mosaic Law as we might know it, consisted of several regulations, of many, many regulations. Some of those we're familiar with, like the Ten Commandments. Well, that was all part of this Mosaic Covenant. And then you had different kinds of laws. You had laws for the Sabbath and how you were to act and function on the Sabbath day. Then you had sacrificial laws, for example. And there are many, many other laws that, that God had set in place in order for the Israelites to, to fulfill this covenant agreement. And so the first five books of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament, are really the books of the law. And that's where you get a picture of God setting up this Mosaic Covenant, especially when you get to, to, the, to the book of Exodus. God is setting up this Mosaic Covenant then. And so Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that, that gives you a picture of this law that God was setting up. And if you were to look at Exodus chapter 24, verse 4, you'd read this. It says, Moses wrote down everything the Lord had said. And then if you continue reading there in chapter 24, you get to verse 7, and it says this. It says, Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. And they responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And thus they made this covenant agreement with God. The problem was that it was an agreement that they couldn't keep. Or in fact, it was an agreement that they did not keep. But you need to understand that the problem was not with the system. The problem was not with the covenant that God had set up. And so you had these external laws. That was not the problem. The law itself was not the problem. The Torah was never bad. It was never inadequate in any way. The laws that God laid out are not bad in and of themselves. God didn't replace the old covenant because he, because he had mistakenly put in some laws that he didn't like. You see, Paul makes this clear in Romans where he says that the problem is not with the law. The problem is with us. He says we can't keep the law. And so the problem is that we are such weak-willed human beings that we cannot live up to the requirements that God sets out before us. Therefore, all the law ends up doing then is exposing our own sinfulness. 
but it never fully fixes the problem. In fact, you read in Deuteronomy 27, it says, Cursed is the man who does not uphold the words of the law by carrying them out. And so the problem wasn't the law. The problem was with the hearts of the people, full of rebellion and, and selfishness. Right. So we come then to Hebrews 8, verse 10. Have a look at that, if you've got a Bible there. And here is the first indication of what this new covenant is going to be like. That's the situation we're in with the old. The new is like this. In verse 10, This is the covenant I will establish with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now, by the way, this is a quotation from the book of Jeremiah. What is interesting here is that this was all written about the new covenant during the old covenant time. So remember Jeremiah, he's an old covenant guy. He's living centuries before Christ came along in the middle of the old covenant system. And here is this incredible prophecy of a new day that is coming when there is going to be a new system and a whole new way of God relating to his people. So you can imagine some of the excitement Jeremiah would have had get it, receiving these words at a time when they weren't even true of him and his own people, but pointed forward to a new day. So this first indication here is that God is going to put his laws on our minds. He's going to write them on our hearts. Now, there's a couple of missteps that people take going off in a couple of wrong directions with these words. It's easy to assume when you, when you listen to that, that idea that God's going to put his law in your mind, he's going to write it on your heart, that basically what you're getting in the new covenant is a bit of memory, that God's just going to sear all the old rules on your heart. He's going to make sure you don't forget them now because they're going to be right on you. So he's going to take all the old regulations and now they're just going to be really like top of mind so you'll know exactly what to do in any given situation. Now, if all we get under the new covenant is a bit of memory, it's not really that great. I don't think that's what Jeremiah is pointing towards. And then other people go off in the direction of saying, well, God's just going to take the, the set of rules that existed under Moses' day and he's just going to replace those with a whole new set of rules. So now all we're doing is, rather than the Ten Commandments and the 613 laws that he gave to Moses, now it's just 613 new laws. And guess what? The list's probably longer anyway, so it's like 1,500 now that we've got to obey. And that's how a lot of Christians today think about it too, that, well, this is just a new rule book. Throw the old rule book out. This is just a new set of commandments. Neither of those really gets at the idea of what is happening here in Hebrews 8. There is a passage in the Old Testament that I think is really helpful in bringing this together and, and showing what is being said here about this, putting the law on the minds of the people. Flick over to Ezekiel 36 for just a second. Keep your finger in Hebrews 8. Ezekiel 36, again, Old Testament prophet, receives a word about this new contract, this new covenant that is coming down the road. Verse 26 of Ezekiel 36, God makes this promise. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That is really an expanded version of Hebrews 8.10. And what God promises here is not just a new set of rules, He promises that He is actually going to come and place His Spirit in the hearts of His people. Because as Randall explained, the problem with the Old Covenant was never the law, it was with the heart. It was with the hearts of the people that could not fulfill, 
could not obey what God commands of us. And so God says, I'm not just going to give you some new rules. I'm going to come and place my spirit in you. And this is exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. We looked at that earlier in the year, Acts chapter 2. God pours out his spirit on every person that names the name of Jesus. And all of a sudden, we now have the presence of God living within us. This is the great difference is the, the, the spirit's presence in the new covenant under the new contract means that the law is no longer this external body of rules imposed on us from the outside. Now it is the presence of God's enabling spirit within us, motivating us, empowering us, transforming us to become like Jesus every day. That is the goal. The destination's the same. The Torah was always established to, to make the character of the people resemble the character of the God they followed. There is no difference under the new covenant. It's simply a different strategy. Now it's not an external body of rules. It's the spirit within the life of the believer. This is what we call sanctification. The main work of the spirit in the life of the Christian is to gradually transform our character to become more like Jesus every day, not through telling us rules and regulations, but through motivating us to become more like who Jesus was, transforming our character. It's a cooperative effort. It's not something that's just going to happen. God's not just going to zap you, but neither is it something that you're just going to do all by yourself. One of the best analogies I've found for this is the, is the story of the farmer. The farmer is responsible for sowing the seed, and raising the crops and getting the cattle where they need to be and making sure that he's got all his stock in the right place. But ultimately, the farmer is dependent on elements outside of himself for the growth and for the harvest. He's dependent on the rain to fall at the right time. He's dependent on the seasons to roll through when they're supposed to roll through. Ultimately, it's out of his control, and he's at the mercy of, of the weather patterns. And this is how it is with the Spirit in our life in the new covenant. We now have the obligation, the onus is on us to obey, to, to work on our own character, to deal with sin in our life, to confront those habits that you and I have that are not what they need to be. But ultimately, this is John 15, we abide in the vine. We abide in the Spirit. We, we have fellowship with God through God the Spirit living within our hearts, and that is ultimately what causes the transformation in our lives. I think it's possible for us as New Covenant Christians to still live like we're in the Old Covenant, though. This is the problem. Yeah, you know, a lot of people, uh, they look at Christianity as that, like you said, just another list of do's and don'ts, and they, they begin to struggle with it. It's just rules. You can never be good enough. And so they get this sense of, of guilt, a sense of failure, because they just, they just can't seem to be good enough for God. There's always this, this burden on them, and they keep trying and trying and increasingly get frustrated because they can't seem to live up to the regulations that God set before them. Yeah. And it, it's worth noting as well that, I mean, there, there are a lot of commandments in Scripture. And we're not saying that when you get to the New Testament, you're in the New Covenant now, there's no, no, more, no more commands, no more rules. It's just the Holy Spirit, just me and this great thing inside of me. That's not the deal. Obviously, in the New Testament, there are plenty of commands that we're required to obey. You know, abstain from sexual impurity, love your neighbor. You can find heaps of them. Jesus gave a lot of them. The point is, and this is really the distinction, that our obedience to those commands happens now in the context of our personal relationship with God. It is an outworking of an intimate relationship that God wants us to have with Him, not just obeying a bunch of rules. And unfortunately, uh, this is so often what Christianity gets reduced to, is just sin management, is just how can you figure out some tactics to sin less in your life? The whole point is that this is relational now. God the Holy Spirit residing 
in you and as you commune with Him and invest as much in your relationship with Him as you do in trying to obey a bunch of commands, it's not just behavioral, but it's, into, it's holistic. You're being transformed yeah, as a whole person. That's right. And you know, it really comes out of your love for God rather than your obligation. Yep. So you don't have to do these things. Now you want to because of your relationship to God. Yeah. And I, I think the irony is too that ultimately with the presence of the Spirit in us, we can achieve a level of holiness that was never possible under the old covenant system. Because if all you're doing is observing external laws, you may affect your behavior, you may develop some really good habits, but the purpose of the new covenant is to transform us in ways the Torah never could, which is why Jesus came along and said, it's not just about not murdering anymore, it's also about your heart, it's about those feelings of hatred that you may have. It's not just about not committing adultery anymore, it's also about the lust of the heart. So he's dealing with us in a much more holistic way because it's gonna get us a lot further to work from the inside out, to be transformed, as Paul said in Romans 12, by the renewing of our mind. So we've babbled on enough about this first point. We have a little video for the second one. Hit it, Steve Wong. Hello, I'm the New Covenant. And I'm the Old Covenant. Are you ready to talk to God? Well, not quite yet. I, I got a lot to do. What's your big plan? Oh, I don't know. I thought I'd uh, thank God for the weather, uh, pray for my exams tomorrow, maybe just worship Him for a little while. How about you? Well, no, I've got to go talk to a priest and persuade him to talk to another priest, and maybe in a few months he'll go talk to God on behalf of me and Sweet. probably on behalf of three million other people. Okay, well, you know, it sounds like you've got a lot of stuff to do before you do any stuff, so I'm just going to get started because I'm kind of excited. Uh, let me know when you're ready. Well, actually, I've got to go get a female goat, and we'll catch you later. All right. <clears throat> Thanks for that. You like my glasses on there? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you get to the second difference then between the Old and New Covenant, and that is the indirect versus the direct access to God. And so under the Old Covenant then, people's access to God was mediated by the high priest. And so the ordinary Israelite, they could never... They could never approach God directly. They could never come into the presence of God and relate to Him directly. And so they could pray to God, but they didn't have what could be characterized really as a personal relationship to God. They couldn't interact with God the same way that we interact with God. They only had indirect access to God. And so that first covenant had regulations for how they were to worship. And they had regulations as to where they should worship. And you get into that a little bit if you move further along there in Hebrews into chapter 9. You start to, you begin to see this, this transition into, or this explanation of what it meant to worship God in the old covenant. And there in verse 1 it says, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. And so you had this temple of God set up, and this, this was where the people of Israel were to worship God. And really, the temple had three separate areas. It had an outer court, and that was the area where the ordinary Israelite, they could come in to that outer court, and they could meet with the priests. And the priests, of course, as we know, are part of the Levite tribe. And so they could come in and, and consult with the priest. But then there was an inner court of this temple, and that's where the priests, and only the Levite tribe, only the priests of that Levite tribe could go into this inner court. And then inside of that, there was the most holy place. It was an inner room divided off by this curtain, and only the high priest of the priestly tribe could go into that Holy of Holies. Now, he could only go in once a year. And so inside this Holy of Holies, you had the Ark of the Covenant, you know, like Raiders of the Lost Ark. There was actually an ark sitting in there, and that ark had things like a gold jar of 
with some of the manna that God fed the Israelites with in the desert. And then it also had um, the Aaron's staff was inside of it. And it had the uh, stone tablets on which the law was written. That was all inside this Ark of the Covenant. And then there was a cherubim that was uh, hovering over the covenant. That's the picture you get within Scripture. And cherubim is simply um, it is explained as the angels of God. Or really, it was seen as the presence of God existing within that Holy of Holies. And so when the high priest went into that Holy of Holies, he could come into the presence of God himself. And so only the high priest had access to God. And that only being once a year could he enter into that Holy of Holies. And so the high priest offered blood for the forgiveness of the people. But the problem was it was limited and indirect in its access. Look at verse 9 of chapter 9. It says this, This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipers. There you go. So even that act of the high priest going into the presence of God to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel, that, the writer of Hebrews says, could not clear the conscience of the worshipers. And so the only access the people of the Old Covenant had was it was indirect through performing these rituals and regulations of worship and by consulting with, that, with the priests. And so the priesthood was their access to God. But you see, according to the writer of Hebrews, the priesthood is also the basis for a covenant. And so if there's a change in the priesthood, there must also be a change in the covenant. Right, which is where we get to Hebrews 8 verse 11. So this is the next uh, defining Mark of the new covenant now. Let's read this. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. This first little section there in verse 11 scares me a lot because it sounds like under the new covenant there's not going to be any teachers anymore. No one's going to need to teach the, the word to one another, so basically I'm going to be unemployed. So I'm going to, oh, it's, it's in my interest to find another interpretation of this verse. But, uh, the, the idea is that uh, under the old covenant, knowledge of God, as Randall explained, is always mediated. So it's never direct except for one guy, Aaron and his successors, who go into the Holy of Holies once a year. Other than that, it's all coming through someone else. It's coming through the priests. It's coming through heads of tribes and family heads, all that kind of stuff. You just don't have access. Access was the big issue in the Old Testament. You and I take it for granted that we can bowl into the presence of God. This was a huge thing in the Old Testament. You are removed by any number of degrees from the presence of God, and usually it's by a whole long way, unless you're really high up in the tribe of Levi. So now though, in the new covenant, we're told that they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Again, it's possible to misinterpret this. This can become a license for what is known as universalism, which is the view that every person is eventually going to be saved and know God regardless of whether they follow Jesus or not, because you look here, well, it says they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. There you go. Who really cares if you're a Christian? Just in, in the end, everyone's going to make it in, is the idea. That's not what's being said. The distinction is not between a few people knowing God in the Old Covenant versus every single person in the world knowing God in the New Covenant. The distinction is between the knowledge of God indirectly in the Old Covenant versus the knowledge of God being direct, that all of God's people will have direct uninhibited, unrestricted access to Him in the New Covenant. 
This is the significance. You remember the narrative of uh, the crucifixion in the Gospels. One of the things that happened at the moment that Jesus died is that the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. It wasn't just a freak accident. This was incredibly symbolic of the presence of God now opening up. That presence which had been restricted to the, the top guy in the tribe of Levi one time, once a year, all of a sudden is blown wide open. And every person who chooses to name the name of Jesus now has the same rights as the highest of high priests in the Old Covenant. Not even just like the normal old priests that did the uh, regular sacrifices. You and I, as followers of Jesus, have exactly the same right, exactly the same status as Aaron and his cohorts. And Jesus has done an incredible thing here because he has not only gone into the presence of God on our behalf, he did that through offering the sacrifice of his own blood, but he has done more than that. He has enabled us to come in behind him. It's not just that Jesus went in there to represent us before God and came out saying, hey, it's okay, you guys are forgiven, you can, uh, you can know God now. Jesus, in a sense, and, and again, we're thinking in metaphors, but Jesus went into the very throne room of God, the most holy place, so to speak, not the physical temple, and we'll talk about this next week, but the very throne room of God in heaven. And not only did he gain access for his, for his own self, but he gained access for every single one of us. This is like, you know the ad... It's been on recently with that guy's watching the All Blacks game, and he's on the sideline, you know, encouraging the team, and all of a sudden one of the players is like, hey, you want to come to a barbecue after the game? We're just hanging out. So he comes, he goes to the barbecue, and then he ends up going fishing with them, you know, this ad, and then he goes on tour with them, and then eventually at the end of the ad, he's on the field, and they're throwing him the ball. And the whole premise of that ad is the incredible, bizarre unlikelihood of any average punter like that ever getting that kind of access to the All Black team. And that is bizarre enough to make a commercial out of that we all laugh at, and you stack that up to what's going on in Hebrews 8. That's nothing compared to the kind of access that we now have to the presence of God, the Holy of Holies. I think this is something that we just take for granted so much in the New Covenant. And again, it's really possible, I think, as New Covenant Christians on this point, this idea of access, to still keep on living as if we're in the Old Covenant. That seems to be, for some reason, what comes most naturally to us. Yeah, that's right. People, uh, people struggle to really realize this idea of grace, that, that God has forgiven our sins, and there's nothing we can do to be good enough for God. And so it's a real struggle. And they, they feel as though there's a need to live under these rules and regulations and yeah. continue to go through that. So they kind of have a fear, of, a fear of approaching God openly. Yeah, or they fear that you can only go to God through spiritual people. You know, I need a pastor, I need a minister, I need a priest or, or whatever, you know, that, that for some reason. And you can understand in a sense, I think it's healthy to have that idea that I am incredibly lowly, God is incredibly holy, how dare I ever approach Him? And this is the way a lot of people think. Now, there's something in that that is very good and true, but that's the fear of the Lord. We don't want to lose that, and I think yeah. in, in the contemporary church, we've almost gone too far the other way. Yeah, that's right. And you look at, uh, you look at real, really church history, and you see the church always kind of being pulled back into this idea of, well, we need priests, and we need, we need pastors and priests that we can go to to pray to God on our behalf. And that's really not what the New Covenant is talking about. The New Covenant is saying, Reuben and I, as pastors in the church, we have the same Holy Spirit in us as you guys do. And therefore, we can all approach God directly through Jesus Christ. Right. And so it's learning, I guess, to make it really practical, of being able to have the freedom to talk to God anywhere, anytime, saying anything. You don't need to make your prayers particularly wordy. You don't need to edit them. You don't need to just talk it up and, and pray. You know, Jesus said, just, you know, just tell God just what, what's on your heart. Keep your words few. Don't babble on. 
Just keep it, you know, just be real with God. Learn to relate to God as you would a friend. And of course, there's always this balance between respecting the fear of the Lord, that He is, in one sense, a distant God because He is holy and we are not. But on the other hand, He has given us the unspeakable privilege. He's invited us in. He's actually extended that invitation. And it comes through Jesus, which again is why we pray always in Jesus' name, not in my name. I'm not here on my authority, but it's because of Jesus that I actually can come openly and access God. I think it's just learning to enjoy that. It's learning to be real with God and talk openly with Him. Right, we covered the second point. We're doing well, making good time here. Uh, one more video for you. Shall we watch it again? Let's do it. Hello, I'm the New Covenant. And I'm the Old Covenant. We have a lot in common these days. Yes, we do. We're both initiated by God. We're both designed to keep God's people in relationship with Him. We're both found in the Bible. It's... Old Covenant? Oi. Hello, I'm the Old Covenant. Uh, no, we're past that. We've moved on. Uh, I can't move on. Each time I sin, I have to restart. You know how it is. Well, actually, I don't. I'm completely Oh, forgiven. what? In the New co Covenant, you don't have to... Had him and we lost him. Uh, could you keep an eye on him? I'm just going to go get God. <laughs> all right, that's the last one. We won't torture you with that anymore, but... Uh, that's what we do all week, just so you right. know. We, it's what, we just kind of play it's around. Why, it's why you pay tithes. <laughs> yeah, so um, you have this idea now then between the... the last difference we want to present to you is the difference between the Old and New Covenant in the sense that the Old Covenant, there was an ongoing reminder of sin, and the New Covenant, there's complete forgiveness. And so under the Old Covenant, the sacrificial system that was set in place was really just a perpetual reminder of sin. Therefore, it was not fully dealt with. The sin was not fully dealt with by the sacrifices that the priests offered on behalf of the people. And so sin was simply passed over, but not completely atoned for. In other words, the, the sacrifices that the priests offered uh, and the blood sacrifices that they gave, and they poured that blood out onto the altar, God would look away for a moment in the sense that the blood would give a temporary covering over the sins of the people, but it was never fully taken away or atoned for. And so their sins were never uh, fully forgiven. And you see that in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Look at that, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. It says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities of themselves. And then it says, For this reason it can never, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. And so what it's saying is that every year the same thing happened. Every year, over and over, the same old thing happened. The Israelites would sin, they'd go to see the priest, and then ultimately once a year the high priest would go into that holy of holies in the presence of God to offer up sacrifices for the sins of the people. But every year it was cyclical. It happened over and over. Every year for hundreds of years it happened because it never fully uh, brought forgiveness of those sins. And so, you see, if the, if the regulations for worship under the Old Covenant could have brought complete forgiveness, and there would have been no need for God to go through uh, bringing His own Son into the world to usher in this new covenant. And so the very thing that was supposed to remove sin actually served only as a reminder of it. And so the reality is that the sacrifices were just that, an annual reminder of sin. If you look further in chapter 10, verse 4, 
it says just that. It says, because it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so in reality, the sacrifices really didn't do anything. Or they did very little in the way of providing forgiveness of sins. Because you see, the people of the Old Covenant, they could offer up sacrifices, but this was only a picture of the sacrifice that was to come. And so the blood of goats did not pay for the sins of the people. So now keep that picture in your mind as you read this last section of the quote from Jeremiah in Hebrews 8 in verse 12. So it's really the climax of the whole thing. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That is possibly the most succinct summary of what the new covenant delivers. Complete forgiveness of sins. If you want to go to one verse, one passage, which really sums up what we have now in Jesus Christ, who we are now as new covenant believers, I don't think you can do much better than that. And again, the irony that this comes out of the book of Jeremiah. It's in, it's in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31 is where you read this. And again, cast your mind back to what this would have been like for Jeremiah. However, he received this word from the Lord, hearing this promise that one day God is going to forgive the sins of His people. This is the aspiration of the nation of Israel. This is everything they had ever hoped for, that maybe one day there's going to be an end to this crazy system of keeping on slaughtering animals and pouring blood over various uh, bits of metal to appease God. Maybe one day it's all going to come to an end. And Jeremiah is given this promise, never fulfilled in his own day, but along comes Jesus of Nazareth. And as he hung on that cross that afternoon, one of the phrases recorded that he uttered from the cross, those three words, you remember them? It is finished. Now, he didn't mean by that, my life is finished. That's part of it. He didn't just mean my ministry is finished. He didn't just mean this little thing that I've come to do, this particular piece of history. Uh, it's bigger than that. The concept is the whole system is finished. This whole framework of living that the nation of Israel has been caught up in since Mount Sinai, since thousands of years before Christ, all of that is finally brought to an end because all of those sacrifices, all of those offerings always pointed forward to a greater and more perfect sacrifice that was to come. And on the cross, Jesus perfectly fulfilled and took up into himself the entire sacrificial system. He was the perfect high priest. He was the perfect sacrifice. He became both things, and he died to take all of our sin upon himself. And when he presented that offering before God, we often think it stopped at the cross. That was the end of it. But there's also then this offering of the sacrifice before God in heaven that Jesus initiated. And God at that moment said, I accept it. I accept this sacrifice. Nothing previously had been accepted in the same way. It, it had just been passed over. It had been temporary. It had been external cleansing. But now God had accepted one sacrifice for all time, which means the simple reality is that you and I are now completely, finally, and fully forgiven. That's just an incredible truth. And I think, again, it's one of those things. We know it. Most people here would affirm it. Yes, 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 Jesus has paid the price for my sins. We trot out those cliches, but there is something somehow that ma makes a disconnection between our head and our heart because you know as well as I do that we're not living like that. 
You know, as I was putting this together, I thought, what would my life actually look like if I believed this to the core of my being? Because I, I mean, I have to admit to you, I don't, I don't think I'm there yet with this. I don't think I've fully internalized this reality. I think my head gets it in a way, but I think you can have intellectual grace. I think you can know it. But at what point does this become real? And what would our lives really look like if we lived out of this? Because I think, again, people are still living like they're back in the old covenant, like it's somehow I've got to work my way to this end goal. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's incredible to me when you look at the old covenant and you think, these are the words of Jeremiah. And you think, well, the Jewish people, they heard these words, they read these words, but yet they didn't get it. But we oftentimes, we do the same thing. We read these words, we hear these words preached to us, we, we hear them, we read them, but yet... When we sin and when we mess up before God, it's hard for us to accept that that sin is forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, that it is finished, that it's covered over, and, and it's done away with. Yeah, because it's so contrary to everything else. I mean, it's not the way the economy works, is it? It's not the way your education worked. It's not the way it works in your, in your workplace. You're going to get out what you put in. You're going to be rewarded based on your effort. It's going to be performance pay. You're going to put the money in the Coke machine. You're going to get the can of Coke out. It's all just you put in, you get out. And so suddenly we shift into this kingdom mentality where it's nothing to do with what you put in. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. And it's really not dependent on you trying to pull yourself up by your moral bootstraps at all. It is totally and completely the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I think, again, I mean, one of the greatest pieces of advice I've been given on this is to preach the gospel to yourself every day because your mind develops patterns of thinking. And the world is going to shape you into its particular mold of thinking, performance treadmill, work your way to success. And we actually have to take responsibility for reprogramming that. Even neurologically, your, your mind creates grooves as you think particular patterns of thought. So start thinking new patterns of, of thought. Start reading Hebrews 8 regularly. Start soaking yourself in passages like Psalm 101 that talk about the fact your sin has been forgiven. It has been removed as far as the east is from the west. And again, I would maintain that when you do this, see, we're scared of talking like this because we think you're all going to run out and just sin yourselves stupid <laughs> because you think that you're all just forgiven now and you can do whatever you like. But I really believe that when a person is apprehended by the grace of Christ, a completely different thing happens, and that is that you're actually compelled to obey. Paul talks about this, that the grace of Christ compels me toward obedience, and I would argue compels you far more than if you were ever living in the Old Covenant or just living by a set of external rules. Yeah, it's really a transformation, isn't it, that takes place in your life, that Jesus Christ can come in and really transform your life and transform your way of thinking from kind of the world's standards to God's standards, and it's a totally different, different concept. And so you get a sense in which, how, uh, you get a sense in knowing how difficult it would have been for these first century Jews to hear these words from the writer of Hebrews when he says, by calling this covenant new, he's made the first one obsolete. Mm. You know, it's, if it's difficult for us, it would have been incredibly difficult for them to understand that God has ushered in this whole new way of thinking. Yep. And so I guess the challenge for us is simply, we know the reality that we are now new covenant Christians and that simple imperative, so live like it. So don't go back. Why would you want to get this? Is what Paul says in Romans 6. Why do you want to go back? Why do you want to put yourself in chains again back there? You've been freed, not freed to sin, but freed from sin. So let this be a liberating truth for you. The fact that we live in a particular moment in history by the grace of God, that we, we're new covenant believers. That doesn't mean the old covenant was bad. Again, it's, I think it's really easy to villainize it. 
very easy to think that everything that came by Moses was pretty evil and pretty bad, and God basically got it wrong. That's just not the reality. That was for a season, and the whole purpose of it was to point forward to Christ. But we now have the reality of the Spirit within our lives. So we invest in that relationship with God the Holy Spirit and allow that to be the basis of our holiness. We enjoy the access to God that come through Jesus Christ, that we don't have to go through an earthly mediator because we now have a heavenly one. We can approach God anytime, anywhere, and we live out of grace and not out of moral striving and legalism. We stand on the cross of Jesus Christ and say with Him, it is finished. Even just those three words, you know, really work on internalizing that. And as you do, I think our lives will even more greatly reflect the character of Jesus himself. So, shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the cross of Christ, and we thank you for what it achieved for us, not only what was visible that afternoon, but the ushering in of a whole new system a whole new contract through which we relate to you. And we thank you, Lord, that we now live under the new covenant, that you eventually wrapped up that old covenant in Jesus Christ, and we now have the freedom of being new covenant believers. Lord, we thank you that we have your Holy Spirit right now living within us, and we want to live like we have the Spirit. We want to live like it makes a difference having the presence and the power of your spirit within us. We know you've given it to us for a reason. We thank you, Lord, that we have unrestricted access to you, that we live continually. We don't even have to come into your presence. We are in your presence all the time. So help us again to apprehend that reality and really live out of that truth. And Father, we thank you more than anything this morning that we sit here as forgiven people. And, and I'm conscious, Lord, even as I say those words, of people that may be here this morning that have not yet experienced that reality in their lives. And I pray for your convicting work in their heart, that your spirit would just continue to probe them, continue to prod them of the need and, and the incredible reality of handing their life over to you and experiencing that forgiveness that we have experienced. Lord, we know it came at such an incredible cost to you, the giving of your own son, Jesus Christ, for us. We know that in a sense it does cost us everything because we hand our lives back over to you. And yet, Father, we're cleansed, we're freed, we're forgiven. And more than anything, we just want to know that at a really deep core level, not just in our minds, not just head knowledge, not just cerebral. Father, we long for it to be in our hearts. We long to live out of this reality. We long to be so full of your spirit that it just bubbles over into every conversation, every relationship, that disposition of grace driving us forward day after day. Lord, would you bring that about in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.